Brother Jeremy said to me, has the Lord put anything on your heart? You know, just generally, uh, not in terms of what to preach this morning, just in general. And I said, yeah, in fact, the series that I'm doing uh, on discipleship, it's uh, weighing heavily upon my soul this morning. Because as I, one, I was moved to uh, speak about it, as I have shared, and as I've been studying it and just weighing the scriptures up, um, it's a it, it's a heavy heavy issue. It's a very serious issue, discipleship in scripture. And so, as I've been looking at this, the, I have personally been convicted and challenged again, because the demands of discipleship and the terms of discipleship never change, and we've always out the, over the longevity and course of life we have to adhere to them. It's not like you know, it's a once off and then somehow it's always. It's like in marriage. You know, you, you share some vows and uh, make a commitment, and then, uh, but as you go along in life, you've got to make sure that you're living by those things. You just take it for granted um, and realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm not really doing everything I should be doing. I'm not really meeting the terms of this agreement, you know? And so, so I, I want to share that because I want to minister this morning on obviously this third part of the series on discipleship and I want to speak on what I we've called the terms of discipleship the terms of discipleship because there are terms the word term just so we can understand literally it means an agreement a contract there's conditions And so when we talk about the terms of discipleship, we are speaking in that context. There are are in in, uh, the terms that Jesus speaks of and that the scripture speaks of, these are the elements that are uh, a part of the agreement. They are the provisions that determine the nature and the scope of the agreement of us following Jesus and and, uh, serving him. And the whole aspect of terms is set forth in the relationship between two people. As we do, we use marriage as an example. But it sets forth the relationship between two people, the terms. But we also use the word term in, for legal reasons as well when we engage in, in various business agreements. And so, you know, if you're going to go get a loan or if you're going to go and buy some insurance or you're going to do these things, you've always got to consider the terms, don't you? To make sure, uh, uh, as they say, you've got to read the fine print because, you know, we uh, pay the premium and then we think sometimes, you know, that we're covered or this and then you realise, hey, wait a minute, I'm not. I didn't read the terms properly. And so we've always got to be aware of the fine print because it exists and not that uh, when we look at the scripture and we talk about discipleship, not that there's fine print because Jesus is straight out with it. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't write the fine print in small writing at the bottom. He, he just speaks it as it is and he declares it straight. He speaks straight and he speaks plainly in relation to these particular issues. And so in discipleship, the terms are set forth through or by Jesus Christ or God himself. We don't sit at the negotiating table and kind of lay out the terms. You know, can we reach an agreement? We don't reach agreements. We are are in a kingdom. We're part of a theocracy. (coughs) Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. He sets forth the terms. And he says these are the terms and it's up to us to adhere to them. It's up to us to abide by them. It's up to us to obey them. And that's how the kingdom of God operates. That's how the kingdom of God works. And so following Jesus is a serious issue this morning. And I want to illustrate to you just how serious it is. And I know, I, I'm, I know I'm a serious person, okay? I get it. And um, I come across like that, I think, many a times. And that's just part of the makeup I think the Lord has made me. Uh, I like to think I'm a bit more humorous than others seem to think. But, uh, but nevertheless, when it comes to seriousness this morning and the issues that we're talking about, we can't, we can't make light. We can't just kind of, you know, 
put them in the context to make things light and make us happy. Sometimes the potency of God's word needs to hit us hard. And the reality of things need to hit us hard to get our attention and to do what God is calling us to do. And so I want to talk about the terms of discipleship this morning because scripture captures it, it emphasizes it, and it treats it very seriously as I've pointed out. And these things we cannot ignore. We can't just overlook them. We can't just neglect. You can't just read the Bible and take out the parts that you want and just kind of say, oh, what does that mean? Oh, that's a hard saying. We'll just move on to the next one. You can't treat the scripture like that. You can't treat the Lord like that. And so we can't neglect the terms of discipleship. They are there. And we're all called to discipleship as we've established. And so we must familiarize ourselves with the truths that are being told. Offensive as they may be for some. And let's face it. God's word has got some hard sayings. And I think it is offensive to some. There are people that do take offense, and we see it. How do I know that? Because we see it in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, it's a, it's a reality of human nature. It's a reality of human life. And so remember, Jesus is addressing these things many a times to his people. And this is not a matter of conversion. This is a matter of following Jesus and serving him on his terms, not ours. And so let's consider... A hard saying this morning, it's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. And we're going to read the text and then we're going to just consider a couple of other things and come back to it. But let's look at verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. The Bible says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet uh, him who comes against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Heavy words, aren't they? Heavy. Now, before we get into the text, I just want to set the tone of the text. Because here is Jesus. He's just been speaking And uh, he's just given a parable of the Great Supper, which interestingly has those that who were invited and um, meaning the the to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and all. And he talks about a wedding feast, and he said that people began to make excuses as to why they couldn't come. And so then the the master of the house said, "Go out into the highways and and into the streets and bring them in, so that they." Uh, for, for, this, for this marriage supper and so forth. And he says, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. You see, because there are those, that, even in this parable, the previous, that made the excuses why they couldn't be there, why they couldn't fully commit, why they couldn't be faithful, why they couldn't attend. And so in going out, And speaking, in verse 25, it says, Now great, listen to those words, great multitudes followed or went with him. Now picture that. It's not just a few. The Bible says there's multitudes here. There's a large, very large crowd that is following Jesus and they're they're going with him. And look at what it says. And he turned 
And he said to them, and he says these first words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, cannot be my disciples. I mean, that sets the tone right there. Jesus is dealing and he speaks to the multitude. And for some reason in his mind, we're getting a little picture. There's a reason, there's a motive. There's a, there, there, Jesus is not just doing this because it's a, a very heavy statement. I mean, it's an offensive statement. Can you imagine the multitudes? He doesn't say, hey guys, how are you all doing? It's not a friendly. He says, listen, whoever comes to me unless he hates. And he uses a very potent, powerful word. And to the hearer, could you imagine being confronted with those words in that moment? It's like, whoa, whoa, hey, take it easy, Jesus. Why do you have to be so heavy? Lighten up a bit. But you see, Jesus is is moved by something. Something's at work that's motivating him to address the multitude in this way. And I believe that that it's consistent. This what we're picking up here. This tone is consistent throughout the scriptures. And I want to illustrate that to you first before we look at the text itself, because I think this is very important. You see, he's setting the tone to the multitudes. You know, could you imagine, because today in the, in the church world, everyone wants to be part of the mega church and the churches that are filled with hundreds and thousands of people and somehow, you know, it's in the, in the, in the midst of the multitudes and the large numbers that people find their so-called comfort in Christianity. Could you imagine Jesus just getting on the platform and speaking such harsh words? He's not interested. See, the world's interested in the numbers, Jesus is not interested in the numbers. He's interested in the substance. He wants to know. He's not impressed that there's multitudes there that make him might look good. No, he wants, he's going to cut to the chafe, as we say. He's, he's going to get to the, the heart of the issue. And that's what he's doing right here. I think if we took and preached the words in the manner and tone in which Jesus is going about things, I think uh, the church world wouldn't know how to process and digest some of this stuff. I have no doubt the numbers would shrink. Because if you're coming to church for a good time <laughs> and you find Jesus' words, you're not going to get that. And so I know that the numbers would shrink. How do I know that? Because I know my Bible. I know what God says. I know what Jesus says. I know what, how, when Jesus spoke and how the multitudes responded to him. You see, Jesus wants substance over stats this morning. And I want to illustrate this because I want to set this tone. Come with me. Go to John chapter 2. Gospel of John chapter 2. We'll start there because here we have Jesus is speaking. Oh, actually, he's not even speaking. There's some words that are accounted and reflective here, which are quite insightful. In verse 23 of chapter 2. Again, there's, there's a group that is following him. They're enamored by him. And then it says in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many, now note the words, many, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now that in and of itself sounds excellent. Many believed. There's many. But listen to verse 24. But, but. Again, why, why? Why? I mean, there's such a positive now. It's going to be, you know, he's the Debbie Downer, is he? Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus, listen, did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of men for he knew what was in men. And that's all it says. It doesn't say anything else. What did Jesus see? What is it that Jesus is seeing that we're not? The Bible is talking about Jesus being a discerner of the heart. And in fact, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? I, the Lord, I test, I search the heart, I test the heart. God knows. We don't even know many times in the depths of our own hearts. But God knows. Because the heart is deceitful. So Jesus is looking at this, uh, another group of a multitude of people. 
And the Bible says many of them are professing their belief. Many believe. That's what it says. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of men for he knew what was in men. What was in men? See, he knew that their motives were not altogether pure. That's my conclusion. There was something that hindered him from fully committing himself to those. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not committed. It's just that he wasn't, you know, he didn't just think, oh, great, there's big numbers here and he's all excited about it because he sees deeper, below the surface than what we see. He sees what's in the hearts of men. He knows all men. He knows what's in every heart, why we do what we do, the thoughts and our motives. He's well in tune with those things. So you have that aspect there. Now turn with me to John chapter 6, a few pages down. This chapter, to me, I remember as a young Christian or growing as a Christian over the years and being captivated by this chapter. It's like I, I couldn't get my head around it for a while. It's like, why, why Jesus, is, knows, Jesus knows these people are not understanding him. Jesus knows these people are, are going to be offended at him. And yet he still proceeds to speak to them knowing that, he's, that they are turning, his, his words are turning them away from him. And I thought, why, why is he doing that? I wanted to understand. Because you have this thing where at the beginning of 6, Jesus feeds the, the, the multitudes. He feeds them, the 5,000. And so, uh, you know, again, they've had their bellies fed by a miracle of God, a wonderful time. God's compassion and mercy towards them. He feeds them. And then he departs and he goes over to the sea, over the sea, and he goes to Capernaum. And so what happens is the people are, uh, Jesus is like uh, the hero. He's the, he's the hero of the moment. They're like, wow, Jesus, did you see that? He fed the multitudes and, and uh, we were all full and we fed. And we, we, that was the best meal that we've had for a long time. And so, they, so they're all enamored with Jesus and they come together and they, they send out a search party and they're going to go find him. Where is Jesus? And so they're searching for him. And then uh, they obviously hear that he's gone over to Capernaum. They get on boats. They go over the Sea of Capernaum and they find Jesus. And listen to what the exchange that begins to happen from here. Because I find it very interesting. Look at verse 26 of John 6. Jesus answered, they came to him and they said, Rabbi, where did you come? Why did you, when did you come here? Like as if they're really interested. What are you doing here, Jesus? Jesus answered and he said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says, you're here, the motive why you're here is not that you're seeking me, but I fed your belly and you want another meal. <laughs> That's your motive. That's what's driving you. And so what proceeds from here, again, I said it's very, very interesting because Jesus goes on to speak and he talks about um, the manna that came down from heaven. And he begins to make statements. He talks about Moses, how, how through Moses God fed the children of Israel with manna. And now he talks about himself and he speaks about himself being the, uh, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I'm the manna that has come down from heaven. And he says these words in his conversation with them. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no part with me. Now think about it. They're like, whoa, come on. Unless you... Now he doesn't say, oh, wait a minute. I didn't mean don't eat my body and don't drink my blood. He's not... This is what I find interesting. He's not justifying or explaining his words at this moment. He's letting it hang out there knowing that they don't understand what he's saying. He knows that they're getting offended at him and what he's saying. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And so they're thinking, are you crazy, Jesus? They're taking this literally. They're thinking about, he's, he's asking them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And no, Jesus is not meaning that and he knows that they're interpreting him that, in that way and he doesn't seek to correct himself. He lets it hang there. He lets them proceed on that false assumption. 
of who he is. I thought, why? Because he knows what's in man. He did, no one has to testify. See, no one can te- no Jesus can test the heart. I search, search the heart. Only God knows the depths of the human heart this morning. And so though he, he allowed them to be confused. It's what happened. It's what's happening. He, and he allowed them to take offense. Look at verse 65 of chapter 6. We'll get to this in a minute, but he says these words. Therefore I said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted by my Father. I find this really important and interesting because here's, many believed. Many were following or appeared to be following. But you see, Jesus searches the heart. He tests the heart. He tests the profession of a person's faith in these early stages. And this is a different instance here but, uh, in, in its application, but I think it's important for us to understand. And so because no one comes to God unless God grants it. Now, he tells us later, no one comes to God unless God draws them. So God draws them. He then establishes the motives on, which, on, which, on the basis of which why we're serving him. And then he searches the heart and he tests us. And in this instant, he has to grant that. No one comes to the Father unless the Father grants it. And so what you have here is Jesus, God himself, is sifting this multitude of people to determine who are the real and who are the false. Who are the, and the word here is that it will be used is disciples. Now listen to this. <coughs> Many turned away that day. So let's look at verse 60. Go to verse 60 of chapter 6. Therefore, because now again they're, they're offended at this saying of Jesus. And then in verse 60 it says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Does this offend you? See, so he, he, many, listen to those, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. And they took offense. And so when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he speaks to them. He speaks directly now to his disciples, the 12. And he says, does this offend you? Does this offend you? You can imagine, this, the, the disciples are in the hot seat, Right? Does this offend you? Are you offended at what, the, what I've just said to you? He says in verse 62, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. He has explained himself to the twelve. Right there. He's talking not physical, spiritual. My word is food indeed. It's not the flesh, the flesh profits nothing, but it's the spirit that gives the life. The words that I speak, you have to eat my words. That's what Jesus is meaning by his comment. But now he's explained it to the 12, but the others, it says many of his disciples, he didn't explain it to the rest of them, and he sorted them out, and many of them walked, walked away. It's like, why didn't he just give them a better explanation? Maybe more would have stayed. Ah, that's the human perspective. God's perspective is different. And he in his sovereignty, he knows exactly what he's doing because no one comes unless it's been granted. And he's judging their hearts at this moment. This is, this is interesting. Again, we're setting the tone of our text. And so he goes on to say, look at verse 40, 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. So in other words, he's saying there are those amongst them and and the multitudes who do not believe. Well, wait a minute. It says that they did believe, but now he's saying that they don't believe. The question is, are they true believers? For Jesus knew from the beginning, listen, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. It's not that they were true believers and didn't believe. It's that they didn't really believe in the first instance. Their faith wasn't genuine. That's what the scriptures are revealing here. And who would betray him? And he said, therefore, 
In verse 65, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. Look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. John chapter 6, verse 66. 666. They went out from amongst us because they were not of us. That's what this is. I know, you know, the, 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 I know it's um, the chapter and verses weren't there in the beginning. I'm just using that for the sake of the fact that it's there. But nevertheless, it says that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That's pretty sad. And that's the reality because Jesus is not after stats. He's after substance. So coming back to our text now, let's go back to our text because I've sought to set the tone of Jesus' words in Luke 14. Now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, now can you pick up the tone? That's why Jesus is doing what he's doing right here. In the context of what we've seen in John 2, in the context of what we've looked at in John 6, again, Jesus turns to the multitudes and says to them straight and direct, doesn't beat around the bush. He says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is, when you hear those words, let's be honest, it's like, ouch, that hurts the senses, doesn't it? When you first read those words, at taking it at face value at the minute, because we're going to try and establish the understanding, just like in John 6, there was an understanding to Jesus' words. In the same context as there is here. But just to hear it straight on the onset, even less, <laughs> why, did, why did he, you know, he speaks to the multitude. If, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, he uses such strong language and a strong word that he knows is going to uh, uh, offend them as well, I'm sure. But this is the way that God operates. We've seen this, we're establishing that. So how, how are we to understand this? Is Jesus now saying to us, because this is how the human heart, what, Jesus wants me to hate my own family? What kind of God is he? What kind of God of love would tell me to hate my parents? See, that's the human response. And it seems like a natural human response. Just like when Jesus said, if you, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And they're thinking, you want me to eat your flesh and drink your blood? Like, you're crazy? See the human reasoning? We think we're on logical ground. We think we're interpreting things correctly. But we are totally misunderstanding what Jesus means by the statement and what God is getting at. And so we take offence and somehow people in their arrogance and pride, they say, oh, well, that's, if that's who God is and if that's a God of love, well, I don't want nothing to do with him. But that's right because so be it. You just missed out on the terms. He just sifted your heart and revealed it. The gospel reveals hearts. That's what it does. And the true gospel preached unadulterated, it confronts people and it brings out things out. And so all of a sudden, well, I don't understand that. What am I going to do? Get angry at Jesus? Accuse him of wrongdoing? Or just say, look, I don't know. I don't understand, Lord. But uh, you're God and you're a good God and shall not the judge of the earth do right? Because you've got all these characteristics and attributes and so you, you're a good God. But see... On the surface, it appears that God is literally asking us to hate our family members. And so you say, well, that can't be right because the Bible tells us to honour our parents and to love uh, our family and to provide and all of those things. So what is it that he's getting at? What is he saying? Well, let's pack it, unpack it a little bit. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Okay, verse 34. 
Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves, now notice the words here, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now notice here in the context, Jesus says, He who loves father and mother more than me. Okay? So we've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. We've got to get the tensions right. And so when you take the words of Jesus here, and he uses the word hate. Don't get me wrong. We're not going to dilute the word. He's, he's actually speaking the word hate. So he's not using the word he loves more in, in the direct sense. But it is what he means when you consider, because if you look at the Greek word hate, but what Jesus is getting at is he's saying that our love for him must surpass our love for any any human relationship. Our love for God must surpass any love that we have in any human relationship. And this obviously finds its ultimate expression in family. Father, mother, sister, brother, children, where the strongest of connections are made. And God says, if that relationship supersedes my relationship and my preeminence, then it's unacceptable. And you can't be my disciple if you have other priorities. If I am not Lord, if I am not first, your first love I must be above all. So in the word, this word hate in the Greek, yes, it means to detest. But when you study the word and you examine it further, and because uh, it does, does have various definitions, it also means to love less, to love less. And so, and what the scripture is saying, and I'm going to quote it here from the dictionary in the Greek so that you can understand. It says, it says of relative preference for one thing over another. So in other words, if you're giving preference to a human, another human relationship above God, God says it's not, not acceptable. It says, by way of expressing, expressing either aversion from or disregard for the claims of one person relative to another. When you start to put a human relationship well, it's my wife. It's my husband. What about that? That's what God wants first, right? No, he doesn't. He wants to, he must be first. He doesn't take second place. He's first. Any human relationship, you have to disregard it. What do you mean disregard it? I'm called to love my husband, wife, my son, daughter, and all of those things. No, if it's getting in the way of your love for God, if it's interfering with your service and sacrifice of the kingdom, then it, and it's taking you away from, those, uh, from, from whatever it is that God has calling you to do, or it's interfering with your walk with the Lord to cause you to disobey, then it must be broken. It must be done away with. It must be disregarded. And that's a heavy word. What do you mean, disregarded? It's like in the previous chapter, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and preach the kingdom of God. That's a, whoa, that's another hard saying. Let the dead bury their own dead. We're not going to go into the context of it, but just, again, just in the face of it, it's a very straight answer that gets to the core of the heart and of the issues, as only Jesus can. And so we begin to see that, the, that all of these natural affections can interfere with God and his will and his purpose in, his, in our lives. So God demands that we must give everything up to serve him and be his disciple. He says, unless, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That is the call of the gospel this morning. It's the call of discipleship. And that's the disposition that has to characterize each of us as we serve the Lord this morning.
But it goes even further in verse 26 when he says, yes, and his own life also. You must hate your own life. You know, it's natural to have desires. It's natural to have um, um, uh, the human heart to have your ambitions and your, your wants and all of those things. It's a natural function of human life. But where these things supersede God and his will for you, then Jesus says this is not acceptable. He says you must hate your own life also. Otherwise you can't be my disciple. That means I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm going to have to give up things that maybe uh, that uh, I, I uh, would desire in order to obey and to, uh, and to do his will. And this is heavy, but this is the heart of it, church. I can't change what Jesus is saying here. It's the word of God. But they're the terms. They are the terms. In, in another place in Matthew 10, he says, He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so that's how it works. If, if, you, if you lose your life for the kingdom, then you will find it in heaven. If you want to hold on to your life now and pursue your desires, your will, to the exclusion of God in your life, then you're going to lose. You will lose. You nev- we never disobey God and win. Never. Never. And these terms that we're speaking about this morning are confronting, especially to the Western nations that we live in today, especially places like Australia when we're talking about these things to the Western church because they think it's all about me. I'm rich, I'm this, I'm that. And they're like to see in church that's so, you know, think that they're so blessed of God and yet they don't even know that they're wretched, miserable, naked and poor. You see, when you think of countries like, uh, or Arab nations, and you think of um, China and other places of the world where the cost of discipleship is so much greater. I mean, you know, in the West, we just have to give things up. That's what makes it so hard. But, you know, in, in some of these places, when they make a decision to serve Jesus and put him first, you know, that they literally are disowned and dishonoured. They're cut out of the wheel. I mean, there's a heavy price to pay to, to follow Jesus for these folk. But the terms never change. It's just that the cost is higher in some instances, but doesn't change the terms. You know, in the Chinese church, there's been some division for a number of years. Because in China, you would have heard, if you're familiar with the church in China, they, they, uh, there was the Chinese underground church, which is well known to many. And uh, this particular church has suffered immense persecution from the communist Chinese government over the decades uh, that have been in, in the years that, uh, of our lifetime. And so what happened is, is that the Chinese, as they do, they said, well, we're going to have a state-sanctioned church. So it's called the Three-Self Church. And what this Three-Self Church is, is a church that allows Christians to freely worship. To You can go to church, you can you know, read your Bible to a point and you can do all of these things as long as you do it on the terms of the communist government. If as long as you obey the terms and conditions by the, the communist government, then you are free to function within this church, this Christian church. But you see, there's been a contention amongst the Christians because they're saying that, no, uh, you cannot, you cannot, uh, uh, to do so is to compromise God's word and is to dishonour God's word and disobey it. And so there there was division amongst the Christians and contention about this that's been playing out over the years. And so you have still the underground church and those that refuse to adhere to it and they still suffer persecution as a result of it. Because they're meeting the terms and conditions of God's word, not the terms and conditions of the government of China. And when you meet the terms that are in God's word, you will suffer persecution. You will suffer reproach. It comes with the turf. They're losing their lives, but they haven't lost their lives. They've lost it for his sake, and he who loses it for my sake will find it. If it's not in this life, it'll be in the next one for sure. 
But we've got to see things through the eyes of eternity, church. You see, human nature likes the easy road, does it not? Human nature likes the path of least resistance. We don't, can't we just make Christianity just so loving and nice? Why are you talking about these things, Pastor? I'm, because there, it's right there. It's in the Word. And when we have to process that in the reality of some of our relationships and our lives, we have to confront these things. And, and, and I know it's not easy. It's hard. This is a hard saying, they said to Jesus. But what are we going to do with it? That's the question. How are we going to respond? We have to count the costs. We have to meet the terms. Because the terms are never compromised for nobody. So look at verse 27 of the text. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me is not, cannot be my disciple. Again, what does the cross speak of? Death. Death to self. Death to my will. We have to take up our cross, and Luke says daily, take up his cross daily and come after me. Cannot be my disciple. Now notice the terms. You can't be considered a disciple if we're not living according to these terms. That's what it says. And so these are hard sayings to which I say to you absolutely they're meant to be because Jesus wants your whole heart, church. He won't settle for second best. He won't be second. He demands to be first. He must be your first love. As many as I love, he said, many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And that's what he said to the church at Ephesus. You've left your first love. And so the terms and conditions are clear. And we have to make sure that we understand them to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, do you think Jesus is asking too much? Don't we have the perfect example of the one who bodies the definition of discipleship? You talk about our discipleship. You know Jesus is the perfect disciple. As a, he laid aside his divinity. He became a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You're talking a life of perfect obedience, of sacrifice, you want to talk about discipleship? Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not put and lived himself, in which he had put the will of the Father first, above all things, even above his own human relationship with his mother. And so he embodies the definition of sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it speaks of Jesus, and it says, Who were the days of his flesh? when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries. Vehement cries. It's not just all logical and disconnected from emotion. He had vehement cries. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says he began to be in agony of soul and he began to sweat drops of blood. Hebrews tells us we haven't even yet resisted to blood in our striving against sin. Consider him, Hebrews says. Consider him. Look to Jesus, and I tell you, if he and his example, and if he did it, then we too, we can too. And he, he agonized at Gethsemane. That place means to press. His soul was pressed unto death, and he yielded completely to the Father's will. And he said, "Not my will, but your will be done." He had made that personal determination, and was able to execute it. You see, it's in private. We in private in times of prayer. The Bible says it says he. Uh, let me finish the the text. Actually, it says he was able to save him from death, who was heard because of his godly fear. Verse eight. Though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And so it's the sufferings of life. It's the agony of having to process those things. And it's in that private place where we have vehement cries to God, and we have to yield have to come to that place of perfect submission when we are pressed by God and the circumstances of life. And it's going to be, who's it going to be? God's will or your will? Is it going to be God or you? Are you going to take up the cross or not? And it's in that moment we have to yield. This is the nature of the Christian life. Why do we love him this morning? Because he first loved us. 
Let's turn as we bring this to a conclusion this morning. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. A few things we'll consider here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's your spiritual act of worship, another another translation says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul is pleading with them. Notice Christ commands it because we're not Christ. We can only speak on behalf of Christ. But Paul, as an apostle and in his ministry, he understands the limit of his authority. He can't act like Jesus in that sense. But he says, I beseech you, I urge you in light of everything I've just expounded about the gospel, I urge you to present by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because it's your reasonable service. It's a logical thing for us to do. It's what God requires of us in light of everything that he has done. And there we have those instructions. The terms of discipleship are are clear in our text. So let's go back as we bring this to a conclusion again. In In verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he's laid the foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And this man began to build and was not able to finish. That's his first illustration. His second one is this. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation And he asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's giving an illustration and he's talking about counting the cost. This word count in the Greek, it's an accounting term. Uh, You know, obviously count. One, two, three. (laughs) Okay. That was really deep, wasn't it? Um, But count the cost. In other words, what the scripture is telling us to do is to do the sums. Consider and reason these things out in light of the gospel because we are, uh, if a person's going to build a tower, he must consider the cost of what it's going to be to finish it because if he doesn't consider this before he starts the process, if he hasn't done the sums, if he hasn't calculated to the, to the details of that construction and he proceeds, then he'll get to a place where he runs out of money and he's not, or whatever the case would be, and he's not able to complete that. And then others will look back at him and say, look, uh, he wasn't able to complete it because he didn't do the sums. He didn't count and calculate these things as he should have. He didn't uh, begin the process as he should have. That's what we can be guilty of. So many people, yes, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. But do you know what that means? Do you know what that entails? Do you know what that demands? And that's a good response. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we criticize that. But God, and and when we say it, we can be sincere, and God takes us through a process uh, to to show us what that actually means. and, And that's the process of discipleship as we're talking about. And so we need to analyse these things, count the cost. And so too, is a, in, there's another example about a king going out to war and he's got 10,000 and the other enemy's got 20,000. He's probably thinking to himself, am I just going to send everyone into battle? <laughs> we, could, we could lose this fight. So he considers the reality of the circumstances and then he sends its delegation out for peace and to, to try and uh, salvage the situation before all those lives are sacrificed. But he's counting the cost. He's considering these things at the, at the onset, at the beginning. And this is what Jesus is saying to the multitudes. He turns to them and he lays it out straight. He says, you want to follow me? Okay, here's the terms. Let's go. He's asking them to sit down and consider if they're going to continue to follow me. Because you can walk, as it was in John 6, they walked with him no more. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. They walk with him no more. 
God forbid that we would do that. But we must, we must heed the lessons and the instructions and the terms of discipleship this morning. And it's not just the once-off. These, these, these uh, truths are timeless and eternal. And like I said at the onset, as I look at them and restudy them, I can reflect on many instances in my life and my salvation over 30 years. But then I, can, then I look at myself today and I say, okay, I've still got to meet those terms. I've still got to adhere to those terms. And that's the nature of discipleship. It's the nature of the Christian life. Lord, deliver us from a superficial and a compromised Christian experience. I'm, I'm seeing this in a general sense out there. It's out there. It exists. And the multitudes love it so because it's a superficial. It's a, it's a, it's a compromised Christian experience and it just you know, it has all the appearance. But, you know, when we get to the substance, I tell you, the, it, sorts, it sorts out the wheat from the chaff, the true disciple from the false disciple. And so we've got to live by these terms and conditions this morning, all of us. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the word of God this morning. Your word is true. And God, even as we handle the word this morning, God, we realize it's, it is, these are heavy things, Lord. This is a hard saying, but it's true. And the demands, God, that you have made apply to us all. None of us are exempt. Sure, you have a different plan and a different purpose for each of us, but we all, in the context of our lives, must examine these things to make sure that we are abiding by those terms and conditions, that we have counted the cost and that we continue to count the cost. And Lord, we continue to serve you faithfully, wholeheartedly. God, I pray, deal with us according to your love and grace. God, speak into individual lives. Lord, I know that you're ministering. And God, deal with us. Lord, let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And I pray your grace and blessing in Jesus' name.